if you want to be a missionary, if you want to go into the mission field, there are going to be times of great hardship, suffering, humiliation, but there's times when he drops these little gems into your life, which you never forget and which you can't thank him enough for. And so, yes, is it worth it? Oh, my word, it's worth it. Because that experience and the life that he's given you while you're on the field, man cannot give you. Only God can give you. Welcome to the Hacker Podcast. My name is Greg Hackathorn. I hope you all are doing well and had a wonderful Christmas. I always love this time of year in Australia because everything really slows down and we are able to spend a lot of time with our family and friends. Today I'm sharing the rest of my conversation with Margaret Ballette. In our previous episode, we talked about her childhood, how she and her husband came to God, and her time as a missionary in Jayapura, Irinjaya. Today we are covering when she became a full-time missionary in Jakarta, where she established a Bible school and multiple works in that area of the world what it's like planting a church in Darwin as a home missionary, becoming the overseas missions director of the UPCA, her advice to those who are feeling the call to missions, and much more. This will not be the final episode of 2021 as I'm planning a small celebratory episode to be out later this week, so stay tuned for that. If you get something out of this conversation, please share it with a friend or in your story on social media and allow it to bless someone else. Also, if you have time to rate and review the show where you listen to it, I hope uh, we have earned a five-star rating from you. I would appreciate that as it uh, provides me feedback and it also allows new listeners to discover the podcast. Well, now that all of that is taken care of, let's get to the rest of my conversation with Margaret Bellet. You were there eight years and then you went back to Indonesia. Did you come back to Australia first before you went back to Jakarta? Yes. When I finished in, in 2002, I went back to, I was tired and I was, the weather, the atmosphere, the, it was um, 40 degrees heat, yeah, 100% humidity. And, you, <laughs> and when I went back, I said to Brother Glass, I said, I've put in two contracts with AVA, that was the um, government um, foreign aid, and I had established a computer school, the first one in Jayapura, also an English language school. Uh, They were apart from the church because the only way that the Indonesian government would give me a visa to stay was if I could bring uh, something to teach the people that their own people couldn't teach them, if you follow what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And so my skills were accounting and computing. And so... Well, sorry, before you continue, uh, I actually didn't... I want to highlight that because I didn't actually think about that. I don't know why I didn't. You weren't a full-time missionary. No. Yeah, you you had a a full-time worker five days a week. It's not like... Because in the UPCI, they go over as full-time missionaries, they get funding, and then they go over and Mm. they're able to be full-time on the field trying to establish Mm. a church. So you did all of this while you actually had another job. Mm. Yeah, full-time job. That's incredible. And travel. Because of my position, um, as a, with the accounting background, um, I had to 
go into the different provinces. There were 11 different provinces. We traveled by boat to get to those provinces. And I had to go into the, um, the schools, the high schools in those provinces, set up a computer system to take control of the accounting and then back in Jayapura, network then back to the head office. So the head office, because the corruption was incredible, mm. and the head office wanted to control the accounting in those different provinces. And that was my job. Now, when I'd finished that, there was no other visa. I mm. had to find another reason for staying. And so I thought, well, I'll see if I can um, establish um, a computer school, but I needed money. Mm. So when before I left Australia to go to Jaya, I had to do uh, an orientation in Melbourne with the government. And they had said, if you need a grant or money, you can contact the Australian ambassador in Jakarta. And if it's a small grant, they'll give it to you. So I contacted them and they didn't even reply to my letter. So I sent them another two letters and they still didn't reply. So I said to the Lord, okay, I've done what I can do and I haven't got any money and I haven't got a visa. So I'm going to take that, that you want me to go back to Australia and go with my family. Mm. And I was very happy with that. But then a few days later, there was a, at my door. And when I opened it, it was a young woman. And she said to me, um, are you, um, are you the white woman that um, uh, has the church here? And I said, well, yes, I think I am the one you mean. And she said, um, I've been traveling in the Balium Valley for the last six weeks, she said, and I haven't showered. And she says, I haven't been able to speak English with anyone. She says, I just wondered, she said, could I stay with you for a couple of days? She said, before I go back to Australia, just get cleaned up. And I said, you're more, more than welcome. Mm. So she came in and she, um, she showered and uh, we chatted and she said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, at the moment, I said, I'm trying to get my visa renewed. And I explained that I had contacted the, the ambassador and no answer. Oh, she said, um, I work for the uh, Environment, APA, Environment Protection Agency in Sydney. She said, my father's the director. My job is getting funding. She said, if you don't have the right funding language, they won't read your letter. And she said, they won't answer it. Would you like me to write the letter for you? I said, well, that would be wonderful. <laughs> so she wrote the letter and about a fortnight later, I had $30,000 in the bank. To establish the computer school, that is amazing. So with the $30,000, I purchased nine computer stations. I had a local man build desks and chairs out of the hardwood that was available. Um, sister, uh, I can't remember, the Italian lady from Alice Springs wanted to come over and help me, and I said, come over for a month. So she came and she and I washed down the walls and the ceiling, got all the furniture, you know, we did all the work, got it all set up. And I created the, um, what would you call it, the training manuals for teachers, not for students, for teachers. And then I trained um, three local young men to be the teachers in the computer school. And uh, the government became interested in what I was doing and asked me if I would 
teach the accounting program, computerised accounting. So the government brought their employees in and it was a great success. There was a lot of money. And uh, a couple of years after that, when the time came again for the visa, I was approached by um, a representative of the Dutch government and they asked me how much I would need to establish a, an English school. And um, I told them, and within a couple of weeks, there was about 90 million rupees oh, put in the account. And I sent a couple of um, young students from the high school. They were just finishing that year. And I went and saw their parents, asked permission to send them to Salatiga to study English. And they were there for two years studying English so that by the time they had their degree in the English and came back, they could take over the English school, which I was running mm -hmm. until they got back. Mm -hmm. So that's how you were able to stay in Jaipur as long as you did, because, yes. um, you know, from the practical side, you were setting up all these things. Yes. So the governments yes. were like, well, she's having success. So let's continue to fund her and fund her projects. Mm -hmm. So that allowed you to stay there for the eight or so years that you were in Jaipur. Yes. How did you end up in Jakarta? After, uh, at the end of the eight years, I really, I was tired. I, I needed a break. And so- I can, I can imagine, <laughs> based on what you just laid out, as well as establishing- yeah, I said to Brother done. Glass, I want to step down, Brother Glass. He was really upset. He actually cried. Mm. And he said, we don't have anyone else, Sister Bolette. And I said, I can't help it. I said, I'm just exhausted. I'm very tired. I'm emotionally and uh, mentally, exhausted, you know. And so I went and lived with, um, I bought a house, bought a, a unit, and I went there and I lived there and um, for about a year, a year. And uh, one night I had a very strange dream. It was just before the conference, the conference in Bankstown, I think it was 2003 or 2004, maybe 2003. And I had a dream, and the dream was just, I'd, I'd never had a dream like it in my life. And in the dream, I was nursing a doll. It was a plastic doll, a size of a baby. And I was rocking it backwards and forwards in my arms. And I happened to look at its head, and the head was alive. It was a, a little baby boy. The whole body of the doll had holes burnt in it and breaks and tears. The body was in a dreadful condition, mm. but the head was beautiful and it was looking at me. And I thought to myself, how can this baby be alive, the head alive and looking at me like this and have a doll's body that's all broken? And I woke up. And the Lord said to me, the head is me, the body is Indonesia. Mm. He said, it's corrupted. He said, you have to fix it. And that was it. Wow. I um, went to the conference in Bankstown, went to the conference and Brother Glass was down the front. There was an altar call after the overseas missions presentation and the Holy Ghost moved on me and said, no you go and speak to Brother Glass. So I went down and I said to Brother Glass, Brother Glass, I believe the Lord has shown me that I have to return to Indonesia. And Brother Glass just started sobbing. Mm. He said, I knew 
I knew this. He said, but I had to wait for you. Right. So, 2004, I arrived in Jakarta. And so, this next time that you went, when you went to Jakarta, were you uh, sent there through the UPCA, or did you have uh, a job as well? Only UPCA. So this time you're allowed to be a full-time Yes, missionary. full-time, full-time. I, I wasn't working, yes. And so what did you do in Jakarta? You established a the Bible, Bible school. school. Yeah. yeah, we established a Bible school. I went and visited Brother Thompson at that time, who had a few people, and helped him to get his church up and going properly. And that's in that's in Bali? The top Bali, Bali, yes. Bali, yeah. And he introduced me to Frederick Dathan, who was his uncle, who comes from the Roti Island, and he was a magistrate, and I needed someone to help me um, understand the deed. We were purchasing a building for Brother Thompson's church, and I needed someone to help me to understand the legalities, legalese, mm-hmm. and I got talking to Brother Dathan, and he came with me. He was absolutely wonderful. And, but he didn't want anything to do with what we were at the time. But because he'd helped me, I took him out for lunch and I started talking to him about his soul and salvation. And um, not long after that, he came and he went, he came to the Lord and got wow. baptized. And he's now got a thriving church in yeah, Bali. In Bali as well. Yeah. yeah. And he and Brother Thompson introduced me to an aunt of theirs in Kupang. And no, no. Uh, sorry, they had a guitar player who had a aunt in Kupang, and she uh, came to the Lord. I went and saw her. She came to the Lord, and now there's a lovely church in Kupang. And Brother Thompson had a someone he knew in Roti Island, and I went over there with Brother Butcher, and we ended up. They handed us the church. The, I think it was a Presbyterian church. They gave it to us after we preached, gave us the church. And we baptised 15 people that day. That's incredible. <laughs> it was just, it's just, you know, there's too much to Yeah, sorry. yeah, obviously. Yeah, you well, could go on and on and yeah, on. Yeah, <laughs> of course. And uh, there's talks that you're going to finally write all this stuff down so we can read it. Is that going to happen? <laughs> I'm halfway through the book, halfway. Uh, well, it's just there's so much. You need to know course. what to cull and what yeah, to yeah. put in and take out and... You know, the Bible school was, um, I think that was the highlight of my life. Mm. Because I thought, why has Australia got a video Bible school? They had Kent, the Kent school yes, at that time. Right. And in actual fact, you know, David Kent was just a gift from God in recording all that mm. and getting it going. But that Bible school material is being used all over Indonesia now. The, is this the the latest recordings? Is that what you're talking about? Or the older ones? No, the older one. The older yeah, ones. Yeah, okay. but the older one gave them the idea to get onto the one with um, the brother from Singapore. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Brother Timothy Lee. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Bible school that is in Jakarta, the one you established, is that that's is that connected to uh, Pastor Amin Lee's church, or is this is it? Separate? Oh no, it's everywhere. It started with Brother Amin's church, then it went to the Bible school in Salatiga. And then we got it into the church at Roti Island. Mm-hmm. Then they're using it in Kupang. They also started using it in East Timor. Um, I went over to East Timor in 2005. Yeah. And that was, um, you know, the introduction of the Bible school to that, to there as well. And that, that Bible school is on Bahasa? Yes. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. How, how many students do you think have made their way through these Bible schools? Oh, my goodness. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, so many of them now. Um, they're ministers now, mm. ministering in churches. I don't know. Yeah. I would have to ask brother. I mean, I believe he's over here just now. I might be going for lunch with him on Saturday. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, he was talking about um, the establishment of the Bible school there as well. He was just at our at our church recently. I didn't realize that the Bible school in Saltiga was connected, that all these were connected to the original one in Jakarta. Because I, I actually was able to go to the one in Saltiga with, uh, I went there with Brother Simon Butcher again and Brother Paul Nightingale. Yeah. We were able to visit them. So that came out of the Jakarta Bible school as well? No, the, the, the Bible school in Salatiga was an Indonesian Bible school which had been established, I think, by Brother White, not Brother oh, yes. Roger White, yeah. Brother Helen White, the, okay. the ones who were a long way, or just after the war, I think, wow, you know. Okay. And, um, but it had never really developed or taken off. It wasn't producing the fruit that it was capable of. And I think that was because it needed someone strong to sort of lead it. Leadership is so important, mm. leadership. Yeah. Without leadership, you have nothing. Right. Yeah, very important leadership. And I went there with Brother Chantana and uh, we spoke to and ran the Bible school material that we had created in Jakarta and the students loved it. And so what they decided to do was put the two together. Use the English-Indonesian Bible school material with what they were using the Indonesian Bible School. The danger that was in Salatig at that time was that they had um, they had to have Muslim teachers, they yeah. had to have teachers from different faiths. Yeah, I remember when I went to Salatig, it was, it's quite dark uh, in comparison to even Jakarta. My word, my mm. word, yeah. And that's what we were aiming to um, get rid of. Mm. So the answer was not really just to have a Bible school that was a Bible school, but the video Bible school was under the control of the pastors in each church mm-hmm. throughout Indonesia, over 400 churches. Right. You know, so it opened up. It let the light, as you're saying, come into the churches. Yes, yeah. and, the, and the churches weren't restricted by the knowledge of the pastor or how exactly. well they knew, how yeah. theologically developed they were. Mm. But, you know, you could use this other materials. Yeah. yeah. How long were you in Jakarta? This this stint, this missionary stint, when you were a full-time missionary with the UPCA, how long was that? Well, I was in, um, I went there in 2004, full-time, and then in 2007. Uh, but I was backwards and forwards from, uh, Jakarta was my base. Right. But I spent a lot of time in East Timor mm-hmm. and Roti Island and Kupang. I spend a lot of time in different places, and backwards and forwards, Maria Jaya as well, and Bali. Bali was a big thing at the time. Um, but in 2007, the Bible school was finished. It took us three years. The project that we had gone there for was done, and the, that Bible school sort of released you because you were no longer sort of needed to teach because it was had, there. It was there. Yeah. And so I went back to Australia, and Brother Kevin Hall was the um, Home Missions Director at the time, and he'd evidently been chatting to Brother Glass, which I didn't know about. Uh, but when I got there, they came and said to me, Sister Bolette, how would you feel about 
going up to Darwin and working under, I know you're an overseas um, missionary, but what if you work with Brother Hall to see if we can get something going in Darwin? Now, they'd had a few people go up to Darwin over the last 30 years, but mm. they hadn't been successful. But I believe it has to be God's timing. Right. It's not that you're not able to do it. He's got to be the one that says, right, it's the time. And I said, oh, well, I'll give it a go. I said, I'll give it a go for two years, just two years. If we can't get anything going in two years, I'm not staying. Right. And they said, okay, we'll go with that. So um, the other thing was, I said, at the end of two years, there's got to be someone to come and take over the work. I mean, I was 69. I was turning 70, you know? I mean, I felt like Methuselah. What was I doing on the vision field? No. So well, I remember we, we had this running joke when you, when you actually finally retired and moved back to Sydney to do our Bible school here. We had this running joke that if you moved somewhere else, you'd end up having to start a church there. Oh, well, I tell you. And um, so anyway, um, brother and sister Namakadri had um, agreed to go up there as pastors, you know, to take over the work. And it didn't take us long. We, we, we you know, it's just a matter of... Uh, it was funny. I attended all the churches. Mm. Brother and Sister Namakadri didn't come until I think Sister Namakadri came after I'd been there for two or three months. And then Brother Bill came maybe after four or five months. I can't remember. They came at different times. Was it, but, was it 2008? Sure. I think it was like 2007. Okay. Right. Yeah, it was just before June, I came. 2007. June 2007. I drove up to Darwin. Oh, well, I'm sorry, when the Namakadres came, did they come? Oh, they came. They came in 2008. I think yeah. I was already there six months. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. I remember when I first moved to Australia at the very end of 2008 into 2009, it was still like, oh, you know, kind of new that the Nomicondra is yes. up in Darwin. Yeah. yeah. Sister, Sister Arietta came up after the conference, and I think he came round about the May or June. Mm. Yeah. So, but in that first six months, I visited all the churches in Darwin to see what my competition was. That was my thought. <laughs> and I thought to myself, there's not a lot of competition here because nobody is really... The one church I went into that I was impressed with was the Baptist church. Mm. And they're preaching on faith. And I thought they're pretty, that's pretty good. So... I got talking to one of the people in the Baptist church and I asked him, he was a young man, would you be willing to help me to do a letterbox drop? He didn't know what I was up there for and I didn't tell him. I just said I was a Christian. And so he did, I think I had about 4,000 printed and we laid a box drop, not one, not one. <laughs> so I thought, oh well, so I organized, I asked Brother Stan, Harvey, if I could borrow two or three of his crew. I think there was um, Angie, Sister Angie, and um, I don't know if Brother Mo was there. No, the, there was two or three that came up, and I saw the council, asked them if I could put on a open-air um, music uh, entertainment. I didn't say it was worship and um, got it all set up, went to a music place, hired all the equipment. They came up, we went and set it all up. The music was fantastic. People said, who are you? What are you doing here? I told them. And um, from that, we got two people. I held the first service the week after that. No, that was the Sunday. The Saturday morning, we had that. 
music festival. Mm-hmm. And on the Sunday, we had uh, the, no, the Saturday night, Brother Stan um, and the other two, I can't remember, Angie, Sister Angie, I can't remember who they were. They preached the horror, and there was the two people in me. And one of them was a young uh, Aboriginal man, Cameron, that was his name. The other one was called James, and he was Chinese. James ended up going to uh, a church in Melbourne and living down there. Cameron went walkabout quite often, Hmm. but every time he came back, he brought someone with him who ended up getting baptised and filled with the Holy Ghost. By the time Sister Arietta came, I think I had six or seven, you know, and Cameron kept on. Ollie, his daughter, his son-in-law, he would, this young man kept on bringing people. Like, it was just incredible. Well, and the church grew up from that. Yeah. So how would, how would you compare starting a church in Indonesia, because uh, obviously you did that through missions, and planting a church in Australia? How would you compare the two? Uh, they're very different because the Indonesian people are extremely gentle very sensitive and you have to know how to how to approach them a different way entirely from Australia you make friends with them you care for them you love them you make them laugh Uh, you get to know their families you become part of them Mm. you become part of them they, when you make friendships with them, it's for life. Hmm. Uh, Australia, the western side, they're cold, um, unapproachable, really. As soon as they know that you're Christian and they immediately put barriers up that you're not going to get me, hmm. like I did. Right, yeah. yeah. What they don't understand is it's not me, it's what's in me, you see. Hmm. You don't get them all, but the ones you get bring others. And you've just got to approach them. See, like when I when I thought to put on the music festival in the only open air place in the middle of the Darwin city where all the shops and everything are. I mean, I thought to myself when I did that, you start raving mad. You know, I mean, what's that? Woman who's nearly 70 doing, doing this, you know, <laughs> going into music shops and hiring keyboards and they look at you as if you're mental, you know. Mm. They're looking for young people. Mm. But there's something in you drives you. Mm. The Holy Ghost drives you. Mm. He just drives you. And you, it's not you. It's not you. You can't do a thing. You can't. Even the ideas, the thoughts are not your thoughts. Mm-hmm. They're his thoughts. Mm. Yeah, and it seems like with uh, planting a church in Australia, you have to be spirit-led, obviously. Definitely. But, but also there needs to be a, a bit of creativity. You thought outside the box. You know, It wasn't the exact same way that you did in Jayapura where you were doing it through relationship, through Bible studies and those sorts of things. You can definitely do that in Australia, but it seemed like in this instance you needed that that thing to break the ice, you know, yes, to, yes. to sort of 
get get in there and thinking outside the box, thinking about a creative way that you could somehow get the message out. You have to, like, I remember when I was a young Christian, I gave a, a Catholic woman uh, Bible studies every week for 12 months. I never, ever want her to the Lord. And in the end, the Lord said to me, enough, finish. And I said to her, the Lord has told me I have to finish my Bible studies with you. And she said, oh, but I look forward to them every week. You see, she, the heart wasn't there. She mm -hmm. wanted friendship and fellowship. Right. Yeah. And we have to know when to cut the cord. Mm. You can't waste time. It's like in Bible school, I would say to one of the students, I'll tell you three times, and if you still do it, you're out. Mm. Now, they thought I was joking. But I brought my children up like that. I'll reprimand you three times, and at the end of that time, if you're still doing it, you're going to get whacked. Mm. We have to know when to move on. If it's not working, don't keep at it. Mm. Try whatever you can. Go outside the box. I did the letterbox drop. Cost me a lot of money. Didn't get one out of it. So do you lie down and die? No. You try something else. Right. And what I tried was a music. Everybody in Darwin likes music. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so they didn't, I don't think they even understood the words of the worship song. <laughs> it was so loud and we were all singing and clapping. That was what drew them. Yeah. But not to be afraid, not to be embarrassed. I mean, what can happen? They can only lock you up. Yeah, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah, what's the worst that can happen? Mm. Do it. Yeah. I mean, you'd be amazed at what the Lord does. He opened up the Red Sea, didn't he? Yeah. You know, with Moses. Yeah, I bet Moses didn't look too uh, smart for <laughs> raising his rod over an open pot of water while, yeah. Yeah. while the armies are yeah. coming. Yeah. Um, you were there for two years. You, you did uh, two years in Darwin. And then once you finished up there, you weren't done serving, but you were elected to serve as the overseas missions director of the UPCA. Mm -hmm. And you you were the first woman to ever yes. serve on the national yes. board? Brother Dan said to me, um, I remember when he asked me, well, I don't know if he asked me, um, because I do know I tried to get out of it. But uh, he wanted me to go with him to um, the the global uh, meeting. I can't remember what the global summit. I think it's yeah, it's called, yeah. Uh, in Panama City, mm -hmm. and I didn't want to go. Uh, in my life as a missionary, I have often, and especially in Indonesia, as a woman and an older woman, you find yourself in situations which are humiliating and embarrassing because you're in an all-male mm. um, sort of environment. Right. And I thought to myself, going to the um, Panama City meeting, I'll probably find myself in that again, and I didn't want to do it. By that time, that was 2010, wasn't it? I was definitely 70 <laughs> years old. Yeah. But Brother Down said, no, no, you'll enjoy it, Sister Bullet, you know. We were going there to um, put forward a, a particular point of view on right. on um, was that the, one the interpretation the of, eh? Was that the one about the blood or is this? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I did suffer humiliation there. I did. 
mm. um, because there are some men in some ministry there who don't believe that women should be in the position I was in. Mm. And so they refused to acknowledge that I existed, I, that I was there. They just they wouldn't even shake hands or, you know, I mean, you have no idea. Mm. But there were others, Brother Kelly, shouted from the other side of the room, Sister Bolette, my wife said I have to give you a hug. Stand up there for the woman he's going, you know. <laughs> and Brother Bern Bernard from the pulpit said, Sister Bolette, it's wonderful to see you here because he stayed with me for a week when we were recording. I used to bring in ministers from all over the place to do the recording of that school. In Chicago, I, wow, yeah. amazing. And I would host them and David Kent, I would cook and look after them. David Kent would do the recording and but Brother Bernard stayed for a week. Wow. And um, yeah, so I, I knew a lot of people and they encouraged me, you know. Did you have Brother Norris? Did Brother Norris come to Jakarta? No. David Norris? No. no. But we had Brother Sidney Poole, Brother oh, David yeah. Reynolds, um, Brother Bernard, um, they, and they brought their wives. Brother Bernard came alone. Uh, of course, most of the ones I wanted were from Australia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know. So you served as the Overseas Missions Director. If you could say one thing to someone who is praying about getting involved in missions, specifically missions, what would it be? I have thought about this, and I'm I'm sorry to say it. I mean, I was listening to Sister Downs when she was um, doing the podcast, and I thought how upbeat she is and wonderful and full of joy. And, and I thought to myself, what would I say? And I would say, be, if you're serious, really serious about glorifying God and living your life just for him and looking for the souls to be saved. If it's all about God's kingdom, be prepared for suffering. Mm. Be prepared for humiliation. Be prepared to be stripped of all that you are. Because I realize now that this is the work of the Holy Ghost. The work of the Holy Ghost is not to build you up. It's to strip you of everything that you are, everything you think you are, and help you to realize that you are nothing. Mm. And missions is a rough sandpaper for that work. So there are times you're on the top of the mountain, the excitement and the joy, but there's also those times when you're on your own and there's only you and the Lord, nobody can help you. You feel the greatest failure. Even now, at this age, I look back and I think, what did I do? Mm. I mean, what, you don't really do anything. He does it all. Mm. You're just there, you know? And you're there to be prepared for leaving. Mm. That's all I can say. And I believe when you reference the stripping down, not necessarily where you as an individual are being built up, you know, who you are and your name and so on and so forth, but there's this stripping down that's taking place. Oh. And that's taking place so then that the spirit can 
work through you. Mm. So there's less of you. There's less of you. And more of him. And more of him. Mm. And when people say, oh, Sister Blake, but you did this and you did that, that, you realize, listening to that, that's not what it's about. You know, you know, nobody has to tell you. You know that you, you're nothing. You could not have done anything. You were there and you look and you see it was done and you don't know how it was done. And he does all these beautiful, sweet little things. Yeah, that, yeah, I, I could write a book about the things he does that makes you realize he, what's happening. Like a woman came, I was standing in the airport one day waiting to go somewhere and this woman came up and stood beside me and then she leaned on me put her head on my shoulder. And I just stood there thinking, what is she doing? And I looked at her and she said, I lost my husband this week. And I said, oh, I understand, yes. I said, but the pain will pass and life goes on. Mm -hmm. And I realized, I mean, there must have been a million people in that Jakarta airport. Yeah. But she channeled me. Mm. And I thought, only God could do that. Yeah. Only the Holy Ghost can do that. Mm. You know, so you realize that if you want to be a missionary, if you want to go into the mission field, there are going to be times of great hardship, suffering, humiliation, but there's times when he drops these little gems into your life, which you never forget, and which you can't thank him enough for. Mm. And so, yes, is it worth it? Oh, my word, it's worth it. Because that experience and the life that he's given you while you're on the field, man cannot give you. Only God can give you. I remember, uh, I think it was Brother Hoffman, he was talking about, you know the the parable that Jesus tells about the the men working in the field. Yes. And everyone gets paid the same amount. Oh um, yes. You know, the ones that came early yes, there yes. the whole day, yeah, yeah, yeah. they get paid the same amount as the one that come at the end. And, <laughs> and you know they they get upset about that. Why is it that, yeah. that they're paid the same? I used to think that too. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I guess the revelation that Brother Hoffman brought across was you know the what we're earning we're all earning you know, we're all receiving salvation. We're all going to ultimately end up in heaven together. But the ones that were there in the field, they got to work along the master all that time. Yes. And so they have the stories, they have the memories, they have the experiences that mm -hmm. took place. And and that's the enriching, the rewarding part of it. And I, I can only imagine how you feel as someone who has served in the capacity that you have in the number of years and where you've been and the lives that you've been able to touch through God working in your life the stories you can tell, and we've heard so many of them uh, today, but that's what you get out of it, you know? Mm -hmm. like we're all going to heaven together. Some people you, are not going to have many stories. Some of us value have. on it. You can't. You can't. You can't. You cannot. I mean, I've spoken to you for, what, an hour, an hour and a half or something, I don't know. <laughs> but the point is, you've only got a drop in the bucket. Mm -hmm. I've got the bucket mm -hmm. full. It's mm -hmm. amazing. Mm -hmm. Well, I just have one final question before we finish up. And I think we know the answer to this through the time that we spent with you today, but I do like to ask this question to pretty much everyone who comes on the podcast. 
what drives you when it comes to ministry? What is it that is that driving force for you when it comes to doing the work of the Lord? To glorify Jesus. Mm. And I can only do that through love. Mm. Mm. Yeah. His love in me and to bring as much glory to him as possible. Amen. Well, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And you know, the time has passed. I have no idea how long we've been here. We might even have to break this up into a couple parts. But I, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking with you and, and going through your story and hearing it. And I'm sure everyone who listens to this will feel the same way that, that I do. In conclusion, I'd like to give you an opportunity to share a word with the listeners, something that God has laid on your heart specifically for the podcast. So again, Sister Blood, thank you so much for making yourself available today to join with us. And uh, yeah, whatever you feel led from the Lord to share. Thank you. One scripture which um, stays with me is that um, Romans 8, 28, you know, just paraphrasing it. I can never be a failure because whatever I attempt and I don't succeed in, he does something with it to turn it into something wonderful and makes me feel like I've got the victory. That's one of the most wonderful things about God. I never think of being a failure now. I never think of being too afraid to try something because I know that all he wants from me and you, whoever's listening, all he wants from us as his children is to try, to try. There's no failure. The failure is not trying. The failure is saying, oh, I can't do it because I don't have any skills or abilities. That's why he said, he takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. I come from a highly academic family and I'm the only one who didn't go to university. But I can sit and talk to a sister who speaks seven languages and she's utterly confounded by my wisdom, not realizing it's his wisdom, not mine. So failure is not trying, but in trying, whatever it is you're asked to do, or whatever it is you would like to do, he will turn it into something wonderful. Amen.